Here we go, guys. Uh, Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And the man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them to the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ, appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise you up, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. 
God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. This is the word of the living God. Thanks, Terry. Uh, before we start, I actually want to ask you guys to pray for yourselves, um, that, you, that you could have ears to hear. Um, I just find sometimes like the most powerful sermons for me weren't really because of the, the person speaking, it was because I was just listening, and I was really wanting to hear from God. So I want to give you guys 30 seconds on your own, just, just ask that God would speak to you through me, through his word, um, and then I'll pray and then we'll jump in. God, you are faithful, you are good, you are true, you are strong, and you're all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign, compassionate, kind. Lord, you speak, God, you work, you redeem, and you're faithful, you're trustworthy, so patient with me so many times. God, even though you are seated outside of the universe, and Lord, in our created state, how could we possibly know you? But I thank you that you, God, entered into your creation through the Logos, the Word, your Son, Jesus Christ, and now through him, we can know you. I thank you that, Jesus, you are the center of this text, the center of the Word, the center of our lives, or at least you should be. We just pray that you would make much of yourself this morning through something as foolish as, as my words and my preaching, God, would you glorify yourself through the scriptures? God, we want to listen. We want to sit at your feet this morning. God, we're all just busy. We're bombarded all the time with noise and voices and, and news and television and Netflix and tweeting and Instagram and everything distracting. Lord, but right now, God, we just want to set that all aside. and We want to hear from you. Lord, I don't stand on my authority this morning. I stand on yours because we do believe that what we hold in our hands, God, is your living word and it can cut deep. So Lord, speak, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, Acts chapter three. Um, before we get into that, it was interesting. I was watching a, um, a documentary about Apollo 8. You guys familiar with Apollo 8? Apollo 8 was the first mission to the moon, although they didn't land on the moon. They basically orbited it and came back. Um, so it was the first time, really, that any human um, had ever gotten to sort of see the moon up close. Um, and, and, and really, the, the, the objective of the mission was, to, for one, to prove concept, to prove that they could get there, but also it was to, to um, take as many pictures as they could of the moon up close. So I remember in the documentary, the guy that, uh, I can't remember which one it was, uh, one of the guys was um, just commenting that it was his job to take pictures of the moon, which that was the only thing on their, on sort of their mind. They were thinking, let's get to the moon, let's take pictures, because this is something we've never seen. This is something really far away, and, and just the fact that human beings could even go there was incredible. 
So they get there, and they're orbiting around the moon, and he's taking pictures. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of pictures, and he made an interesting comment, and he said he actually got really bored after a while uh, because it was like crater, 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 you know, like just gray, you know, like not, well, maybe it's because it was a black and white uh, footage, but yeah, just, you know, there's not a lot of color there, right? And so this prize that they were kind of aiming for, they're thinking it would be so exciting, and I'm sure it was, but, but ultimately they, they got there, and it was not quite as exciting as what they thought, and, and the comment that he made that I thought was so interesting, so intriguing, he said the thing that they weren't planning on being the most, the crown jewel of their trip, the thing they hadn't even thought about was a particular moment, and that particular moment was when they came around the side of the moon, and they saw the earth, the very thing they were already on, the thing they spent their life on. And they, didn't, they said they, it wasn't even on their radar to think that the most beautiful thing they would see would be the earth, because no one had ever seen the earth from that, that, that level away. And in the midst of all of the craters and all the dust and all the grayness of the moon, there is the earth, blue, you know, the colors, just, just, just like the perfect place for life to dwell. I thought that was so intriguing. Similar thing, Jesus um, on the road to Emmaus, if you remember at the end of Luke, he's um, in his resurrected state, but nobody knows he's resurrected yet. And the disciples are just bummed. They're disappointed, they're frustrated because the guy that was supposed to be the Messiah, the guy that was supposed to come and establish Israel as a nation again, he's dead. He's gone, and they're frustrated with that. So two of these guys, you know, they were there for Passover, so they're returning home from Jerusalem on, uh, it's like a 20-mile trip or whatever. They're, they're returning home, and all of a sudden, this guy comes up and starts walking with them, and they don't know who he is. Now, we, the reader, we know that it's the resurrected Jesus, right? We know it's Jesus in his resurrected body. And these guys, they're just kind of murmuring and, and muttering and probably trying to figure out, okay, so what was that whole thing? Like, what, did we just make this up? Who was this Jesus guy? I mean, he, he wasn't what we thought he was going to be because there was so much Old Testament prophecy about the, the Messiah was going to come in, like a military colonel, a David-like person come in and just kick Rome out. Um, and they were just really confused by this and so Jesus, you know, um, somehow cloaked. They don't know who he is. They don't see him. He comes up, and it's just classic Jesus. He's like, what are you guys talking about? <laughs> and they're like, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know what just happened? I mean, are you guys, are you, did you live under a rock? Like, what's going on? And they begin to explain to him, you know, what happened. And, and it's interesting. When they explain to Jesus about Jesus, you learn a lot about their theology. They thought he was just some prophet. They're like, well, we killed another prophet. What else is new? That's what Jerusalem does. That's what Israel does. We kill prophets. God sends them, we kill them. Okay? Um, nothing new, right? But they just thought he was just another prophet. It must have been. Because if he didn't raise from the dead, he's just a prophet. And Jesus is just sort of listening. And then he starts to talk. And Jesus, he, he begins to teach through all the Old Testament and begins to show them how everything in the Old Testament was actually pointing to Jesus. He was actually pointing to Christ. And they're just blown away. Now, they don't know who he is yet. And they, they invite him. They talk him into coming over for dinner. So, so um, they go, and, and Jesus grabs the bread like he would have done so many times around so many tables with these guys. And he breaks the bread. And in that moment where he breaks the bread, their eyes are opened. They realize this is Jesus, and he's gone. And in that moment, they're remembering everything he just taught them, and they're thinking, it was all about him. The whole Bible was all about him. And it's like that moment, they're coming around the moon. And, and they're so, they're, their sights were so set on the moon that they didn't realize what they were really needing was what they already left, okay? They, they're so thinking about this future messianic um, kernel that's gonna come in and, and sort of um, take over the world that they missed the beauty of the, of the real treasure, Jesus himself. He was the goal, he was the focus. Isn't that amazing? 
This is exactly what happens in our text here. Okay, Peter is interacting, engaging with a group of people who have completely missed it. And all he's trying to get them to see is the, is the treasure that Jesus is right in front of them. So let's, let's get into that. Verses 1 through 10, uh, Terry read it. I'm not going to get super uh, deep into it, but the, the healing, uh, the lame beggar who's sitting in Solomon's portico, portico and he's, he's begging, um, basically just to kind of you know, um, recapsulate the story here, Peter and, and John are going up to the temple, and they, they see this, this, this beggar who would have been sat there. You know, there is no, um, there is no sort of uh, structure for people who need food stamps or, or gov, uh, government aid. So what they would do is they'd bring this guy, and he'd sit there, and, and it would be an opportunity for these Jews to give alms and, and be able to worship God with their, their giving. And Peter um, and John, it's Peter and John, right? Peter and John uh, come up, and, and, and he, he's sitting there, and they know what he's asking for. He's asking for, for some, some money. And, of course, the classic line, Peter goes, you know, silver and gold have I none, but what I have, give unto you, rise up and walk. He grabs the guy and lifts him up, and the guy literally just stands up and walks. And this guy, we know that he was about 40 years old. He never walked before, and everybody knew it. The guy just stands up and walks. I remember J.D. Greer, one of my favorite pastors, he, he made the comment one time that uh, they went to take their tithes and offerings out for the day, and someone had put a McDonald's McGriddle in their basket with a little note that said, silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give unto you. <laughs> that was really funny. <laughs> That's obviously not what's happening here. But anyways, um, so, <laughs> so anyways, the, uh, the, he stands up and walks. Now, this is a really significant moment in the book of Acts in terms of the overall flow of the book because this is the first miracle that we see. Now, Pentecost was a miracle, obviously, but this is the first sort of healing that we see. Um, and you've got to ask the question, what's Luke's purpose in placing this healing right here at the beginning of chapter 3? What's his purpose in that? There's a few things. Uh, first of all, if you remember last week, if you were here in chapter 2, verse 43, um, it said that the apostles... Um, uh, awe came upon every soul, and, every, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So um, as Luke said that in chapter 2, then he gives an example. Here's what the signs and wonders look like. Here's one right here. Now, they probably did more signs and wonders than we have in Acts, but these are just some of them that are recorded. He puts that there for that reason. He puts it here also to give credibility to the apostles' authority, okay? Um, because what do you know? These guys can do what Jesus did. It doesn't mean that they're Jesus, but it means that the same authority that Jesus had, that these guys, that Jesus lives within them through the Holy Spirit. So it's an illustration of authority, that the apostles' doctrine can be trusted. That's why we read the New Testament. That's why we read Luke's account of the early church, okay, because it has apostolic authority. Even though Luke wasn't an apostle, Paul was, right? Paul walked with the risen Christ. He's also connecting the ministry of the apostles to the ministry of Christ. Okay, Christ is continuing to work. Um, but he's also doing something else. He's, he's illustrating the fact that the inbreaking, and that's an important word, inbreaking of God's kingdom is starting to happen. We talked about that a few week, weeks ago. Okay, because Jesus has conquered death, conquered sin, now God's kingdom, which was restrained largely um, in heaven, now is breaking into earth. And as it's breaking in, what happens? People start getting healed. Because in the kingdom, there is no sickness, okay? This is the illustration that's happening. The breaking in of the kingdom. It actually was prophesied 700 years before this in the book of Isaiah. And, and this wouldn't be lost on Luke, by the way, as he writes this. Uh, Isaiah 35, 5 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. And if you remember from when Terry read it, that's exactly what he did. 
He's leaping, praising God. So what Luke is saying here to the Jewish audience that would probably be reading this is, this is exactly what God said was going to happen. Okay? When the kingdom begins to break in, people are going to be healed. People are, that, were, that were once not able to walk are going to be able to leap uh, around, which is incredible. But the, the deal is, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the healing, even though that's the, the more sort of a obvious part of chapter 3. The healing is really just the backdrop for Peter's sermon. The healing in chapter 3 of this lame beggar is, the, is sort of the, the catalyst or the launching point for all of chapter 3 and chapter 4. Everything that comes after that came after that because this guy got healed. Because this guy got healed, they get an audience. They get tons of people, as we'll see, that they preach to. Because this guy gets healed, Peter preaches a sermon which ends up frustrating the council, frustrating the leaders, which puts Peter into another position where he can witness, where he can speak truth. So all of chapter 3 and 4 are because of this healing, but the healing isn't the point. Okay, the healing isn't the point. And, and you need to know that because a lot of people read Acts and they think it's just a book of recorded miracles. It's just something that we can see. Look at the miracles that God did. It's actually a book about Jesus. And it's the sermons that, that Peter and others give are actually really the focal point of the book of Acts. The miracles are simply giving credibility to those teachings. Okay, so we need to read it that way. This is a book about Jesus. It's not a book about um, miracles, although um, miracles are in there, okay? That's just important to understand. So having said that, look at verse 11 and 12, and let's kind of get a feel for why Peter decides to, to sort of stand up and preach another sermon. This is his second sermon in the book of Acts. So verse 11, while he, the, the, the lame man, while he clung to Peter and John, I love that, he's just hanging on to them, okay? We don't know exactly why. It could be because he's like, you guys are got power and I don't, I don't want to let go of you guys. It could be that he was just worried he was going to fall over. I mean, he hadn't walked. Okay, I don't know. But he's clinging to these guys. And all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon. So these guys, um, something miraculous happens. This guy who is clearly couldn't walk before, now he's walking. Now he's leaping, running around, okay? And it draws a crowd, because that's what miracles do. They draw crowds. This crowd shows up. They all knew this guy, and they knew that he couldn't walk, and they were, that it was clearly affirmed that something miraculous had happened. And everyone wants to see the source of the power that just came out of these two guys. They're looking at Peter and John, and they're like, what kind of guys are these? They just healed somebody that couldn't walk. Now, Peter, in verse 12, says, Peter saw it. What did he see? He saw this mob coming, <laughs> okay, looking for the freak show, right? What's going on? Let's go check it out, Okay. Um, Peter saw it, and he addressed the people. He spoke up, and he says, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own piety or power or piety we have made him walk? So Peter's kind of put off by this. You notice his tone? I mean, these guys, you think this is what you want, right? You, you know someone gets healed, and all of a sudden all these people are there. Okay, but Peter, he's been around the block a few times. Okay, you know, he, he's, got, he's got a few things in his mind as this crowd is starting to form around this miracle. For one, he, he kind of calls them out on not paying attention. He's like, hey, you know, this, some crazy stuff has been happening in Jerusalem over the last two months. If you guys weren't paying attention, uh, Jesus came. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was resurrected. The Holy Spirit came. Thousands of people got saved. Um, all of these, this 120 were speaking in all these real languages, and everyone was hearing the gospel. I mean, there's been some crazy headlining events happening in Jerusalem in the last two months, and somehow these guys are confused why that guy just got healed. So Peter's kind of like, hey, have you guys been tuned out? What's going on? 
The other thing is Peter's really aware of the fickle nature of a crowd who's obsessed with the miraculous. Okay? He walked with Jesus for three years. He saw these guys. He saw them come just, just doting over Jesus for his miracles, and then in a matter of months later, yelling, crucify him in the crowd. So Peter knows that to get people saved because they saw a miracle just won't cut it. It just won't. Religious experience is never enough. Okay? It needs to be more than that. So, so Peter is immediately looking to root their faith in something more than just this experience. You, know, you see someone get healed. That's never enough. For you, you're always going to want more miracles. I can imagine Peter's remembering the time that all of the, the crowds were listening to Jesus teach all day and they didn't have any food. So Jesus multiplies the bread and the fishes, which would have been really impressive, right? And these, he feeds everybody and then everyone goes home for the night. And the next day they all come back looking for Jesus and they track him down. He's across the other side of Galilee. They track him down and Jesus just calls him out. He's like, you're not here because you care about what I'm saying. You're here because you want food. You want more miracles, that's the reality. Miracles are addicting. Well, this was cool. What's cooler? This was amazing. I want more. I want more. I want more. I want more. The reality is Peter knows the fickle nature of a crowd who is only looking for a show and not looking for the truth. Okay? So Peter instantly knows to ground them in the reality of who Christ is, not just in the power of what Christ does. Okay? It's important that you get that. He perceives the human inclination to, uh, to, to worship power and piety. You notice those two words? Peter's like, hey, why do you guys think that we did this because we're so powerful and pious? What is pious? Think about it this way. Power is what you do. Pious is what you don't do. Okay, pious is, it's like holiness. It's sort of like discipline. Okay, and those are the two things we sort of hold up, especially in sort of uh, Christians, you know, circles. Like, man, this guy's so holy. He doesn't send his kids to school. He doesn't uh, eat, you know, GMO. I mean, he, he doesn't, whatever, you know. I mean, we're, mostly Christians are defined by what they don't do, which is silly. We should be defined by what we do, okay? But he, he, he's saying, you guys think because we're so powerful and because we're so righteous and holy that we can somehow muster up this miracle? I mean, isn't that how we think, though? I don't know about you guys. I mean, this is how I think. I think if I just do this and do this and do this, my kids will turn out great. And if I just do this and do this and do this, my marriage will be perfect. My marriage is perfect because my wife is perfect. But um, it's not. It's not perfect, but she's perfect. Okay, I'm going to shut up. So if I do X, Y, and Z, I will get X, Y, and Z, right? If, if I'm really holy and really spiritual, and you know, then my life is going to be great. No, that's not true. <laughs> that's really not true. Um, the disciples were pretty pious, and they all got murdered. Paul was pretty pious. He spent most of his ministry in prison. Everybody hated him. You know, now he's like one of the most famous people in history, but not then. Nobody knew who Paul was. He was just some guy going around uh, with, a, with a group of missionaries getting beat up all the time, okay? He was pious. So doing the right things doesn't necessarily mean that God's power is going to manifest in particular ways, and Peter wants these guys to understand that this guy didn't get healed because we're so amazing, and Peter knows the crushing reality of being a leader that people put on a pedestal and say, oh, you are amazing because you do X, Y, and Z. That's crushing to leaders. You know what that forces leaders to do? It forces them to fake it, to meet your expectations. And then they burn out. And then they have to hide things because they feel like if they're honest, then, then, then you're, you know, you're going to be crushed by that. It also crushes you when you put people on a pedestal because then it makes you think that they're somehow better than you. Makes him think that somehow they have it figured out and you're just down here. Don't do that. Peter instantly says, this is about Jesus. This miracle has nothing to do with me. Nothing to do with me. 
It's all about Christ. It's all about his power. It's what he does right away. Now look at what he says. It says he addressed the people. That can also be translated, he answered them. Not answered in a sense where they asked him a question, because they actually didn't ask him a question. But if you remember in the good old King James translation, 1 Peter 3.15, it says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, set him apart, be ready always to give a what? Answer to every man that asks you a reason for the hope that is in your that is in you with meekness and fear. So what Peter's doing is people come and they see hope. And that guy just got healed. I want some of that. And now Peter's gonna give them a reason for that hope. He's gonna say, let me tie, let me tie you to, to the reason for this. Let me show you what it is that's actually hopeful here, okay? It's important to get that. What he's doing is he's redirecting their affections. He's readdressing their affections from the miracle itself to Christ himself. It's what he's gonna do in this sermon. Now, before we jump into it, um, I want to say a quick word about relevance, okay, about relevance, because I, I think that this sermon is relevant for you today, okay? Relevant, uh, relevance just means it's something that's applicable for your life today, okay? And, and relevance um, is kind of an interesting thing. They did a study um, some while, a while back about what kind of news people want, and it, it wouldn't surprise you. There's two things people are interested in, new things and scary things, new things and scary things. What is, what is the news always about? New things and terrifying things. Iran, North Korea, Ebola. I mean, it's like they know that people will click on something if they're threatened. If they feel like, if I don't click on this, I might not be prepared for something. Or, hey, that's new. That's interesting. Those are the things that appeal to us as a human nature. So, so relevance, in order for something to be relevant, it usually needs to appeal to one of those two things. Um, is Jesus still relevant? That's kind of a question I think a lot of people you know, ask, especially when I, I interact with people um, in the world throughout the week and I tell them what I do and, and I think I can see it in their head. They're thinking, Jesus isn't really relevant anymore to what we're dealing with. And that's the question, I think. And I think a lot of Christians are feeling that way too. Is Jesus really still relevant? Or was he just sort of relevant maybe to our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation? Is he still relevant? And we got an interesting comment on our Facebook and I, and I want to be careful because I don't want to... Um, demean this gal. I actually would love to have a conversation with her. Um, but, but, but this gal left a comment, and she was kind of um, bashing another church in town for being too large, which we love that church, and I think that they're, they, um, praise God, they're large. Um, you know, and, and then she kind of went on to say that um, she's tired of, and they preach similar to we do. It's a, the historical grammatical, like, what did these guys really say, and how do we figure out what they really said? Uh, let's start there, you know, instead of what does it mean to me and all this hogwash. Okay, so they teach similar to us. And she said, I'm so tired of hearing people teach about what happened in the Bible. I want to hear about things that are relevant for today. And I get where she's coming from in that. But she's wrong. There's really nothing more relevant than what happens in the Bible. And it's not just biblical knowledge. It's Christ. Christ is relevant. <laughs> he's, really, he's really relevant. Okay, so the question is, is Jesus relevant? And this is the question that Peter's trying to answer to these guys, because these guys, they completely missed him. Jesus came and went, right? His ministry, three years, he was crucified, he resurrected. They completely missed it. They're still tuned into Judaism. They're still thinking about um, Torah. They're still thinking about the law. They're still thinking about Messiah to come, and they've completely missed Christ. And what Peter does is he takes advantage of the fact that now he's got a crowd of people around him, and he says, let me tell you what's really relevant to you, Okay? He's relevant to you. And he does it in three ways. He tells them that Jesus is relevant to the three things that really should matter to us, our past, our present, and our future. He's relevant to your past. He's relevant to your present. He's relevant to your future. 
That means he matters to all three of those things. And I want to show you how Peter masterfully, by the Holy Spirit, shows these guys how Jesus is relevant to their past, present, and future. So if you're a note taker and you want to have a nice little outline, that's going to be my three points. Jesus is relevant to your past, to your present, to your future, okay? Number one, he's relevant to your past. Let me show you how Peter shows these guys this truth. He shows them that Jesus is relevant to their past. Look at verse 12. He starts his sermon like this. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. What's Peter doing in that opening sentence? He'd probably just read right over that. But here's the thing. Here's what he's saying here. He's saying, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who are they? They are the patriarchs. These guys are the preeminent figures in the Jewish religion. If Jesus is connected to them, then Jesus is relevant. If Jesus is somehow in contradiction to them, he is not relevant to them at all. These guys have anchored their faith, rightly so, in in the, the faith and the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. And what Peter's saying here is he's saying, Jesus... And the God of your patriarchs, they're one. There's a connection. Okay, there's a connection there. He goes on in verse 22, skip ahead a little bit. He says, Moses, okay, Moses is like the Michael Jordan of Judaism, right? I mean, this guy is the guy. He's the guy. He gave him the law. He was the prophet, man. Moses was a big deal in Judaism. He says, Moses, your guy said, the Lord Yahweh, God, will rise up raise up for you a prophet like me, like Moses, from your brothers, and you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham and your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. In other words, all the prophets, including Moses, were trying to get you guys to be prepared for this guy when he came. And you killed him. Okay? You killed him. I mean, this, this was the prophet Moses spoke of. If you go back, Moses talked about that in the Torah. He talked about how there would be this prophet that would come and that this prophet would be, uh, you need to listen to him. Peter, I mean, you gotta understand how astounding this sermon would be, okay? To us, we're like, oh yeah, whatever. To these guys, it'd be like, you're saying the carpenter, the, the Nazareth, the rabbi from Nazareth, like he's, that's the prophet. He's the prophet. Yes, he's the prophet. All of your Old Testament has been trying to get you ready to recognize and see this guy. You know, Jesus said, he said, you don't know me because you don't know the Father. You, th- you think the scriptures will save you? The scriptures are about me. The whole Testament was about Jesus. That's what Jesus tried to get through these guys' head on the road to Emmaus. He took them through the Old Testament. He said, all of it is about me. It's all about me. So what Peter's doing is he's bringing relevance of Christ to these guys' past these past lineage. Now, we live in a Western culture where we really don't think much past our grandparents. You know, we don't think, we don't, we're not in an honor-shame culture. We don't think about honor and, and lineage uh, and heritage. We think about me and my generation and my life, and, and every Disney movie that we have is about getting out from under our parents' you know, legacy and getting on, finding our own self, right? Just watching Mulan last night with my kids. It's like, oh, there it is again. You know, oh, poor Mulan. Her dad wants her to be this, and she needs to be that. Okay, so we don't get this. But to the Jews, 
It is of utmost importance that they honor the faith of their fathers and their father's fathers because they believe it's true. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the true God in there, and he is the true God. So what Peter is doing is he's saying, I know that it feels like this is some new religion here that we're bringing, that this is some brand new thing, and I'm asking you to, to sort of ditch everything that you've ever learned about Judaism, but he's saying, in fact, there is, important word, continuity between the Old and the New Testaments. Jesus is the pinnacle of everything your fathers believed. And you are able to be in continuity with your fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers' faith when you believe in Christ. And guess what? If you don't believe in Christ, you are not in continuity with your grandfather's faith. You know who Abraham believed in? He believed in Christ. You know who Isaac believed in? He believed in Christ. Now, he didn't understand, maybe fully, who Jesus was going to be. But Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. He is. He's the point. He says in verse 25, you are the sons of these prophets. You guys are the lineage of these guys. You guys should get it. You should, you should see this. You should understand this. There's continuity. So Jesus is relevant to their past. Now, let me say this. Jesus is relevant to your past. He's relevant to your past. Okay? Your deepest lineage. Think about this. Your deepest lineage is who? It's God. And this, this is why people get so confused about humanity. Okay, God made you. He took the dust of the ground, which is important to know because that means that you're not God, okay? You're not God. He took dirt, creation. But what did he do with the dirt? He breathed ruach, the Hebrew word. He, he breathed his spirit into it. And it made that creation, that dirt, that lifeless dirt, into a person. That means that you're part dirt and part, now I have to be careful I say this, I'm not saying you're God, okay? But you're part of God, in a sense. He's breathed his spirit into you. That means that your deepest lineage is only satisfied in him. If you find any kind of connection to any kind of reality that is smaller than that, you will be dissatisfied. Your deepest lineage is God. The, 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 the problem is, is that in the garden, man who was dirt and God's spirit was separated from God's spirit, leaving a giant hole. You know what holes tell you? Something was there. That's what holes tell you, right? Oh, man, there's, there was something here once. You have a gaping hole. That gaping hole is that God's spirit was disconnected from you because of your father's sin, Adam, and your sin, and that the only way you're going to find that true, relevant um, uh, lineage and, and, and meaning and purpose is when you fill that hole with your deepest relative, which is God. He created you. You need to come back to that. The Bible makes it really simple. It, it, it sorts humanity into two families. Adam's family, don't think the show, I'm not talking about the show. Adam's family, I know you're like picturing the little hand and Uncle Lester, just get rid of that. No, Adam, Adam's family and Christ's family. These are the two families of humanity. What happens when you get saved is you resign your connection to your father, Adam, and you now become part of a new humanity whose father, and if I can use a big word, progenitor, is Christ. He is the new Adam. He is the new humanity. 
This is what salvation is. And now you, because you are in Christ, you are connected back to your deepest lineage and you're connected back to, to your father. It's extremely important. You are the imago Dei. You are created in the image of God and you will only be satisfied when you are back connected to your creator. You know how many movies there's been made about that? You know, movies like, like the, the robot or the whatever, you know, needs to find its maker. Where is my, who made me? Why am I here? Why do you think we make those movies? Because we're doing the same thing. Why am I here? What am I here for? Where am I going? These are relevant questions. Questions the world can't answer, by the way. Questions that can't be answered by aliens or primordial soup or the back of crystals or whatever people want to say we came here for. You were breathed into existence by God and you are Imago Dei. You are in the image of God. That's why we value human life. That's why we hate abortion. That's why we hate anything that mistreats people because you were made and are an image bearer of God. Without that worldview, how do you value humanity? You know, well, secular people seem to value humanity because they were taught it by the church. They were taught it by Jesus. That's what's informed our Western ethic. I talked about that last week. But anyway, you are connected back through Christ. Jesus is relevant to your past. Number two, Jesus is relevant to your present. He's relevant to your present. Look how Peter shows them this. Verse 12, he said, The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one. Holy and righteous means holy, set apart, righteous, guiltless, okay? Meaning God picked this guy. This was his Messiah, okay? God's Messiah. He was, right, he was righteous, he was blameless, he was innocent. And Peter, or Peter, Pilate even wanted to give him back to you. Remember that? I mean, Luke's giving commentary on what happened in the crucifixion. Pilate's like, this guy's innocent. I don't want to kill him. I'll tell you what. Um, you pick him and I'll give him to you. And what do they do? Give us Barabbas. Give us the murderer. Look at verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. What's Peter doing here? He's indicting these guys. They're guilty. He, they're guilty. They killed the Messiah. They killed him. The holy, the righteous one, dead. <laughs> okay. Now, they, they don't fully get the resurrection yet at this point. Peter's going to bring that in. But the weight, the gravity of the guilt that you would feel in that moment would be piercing. And obviously these guys get it because there's a response. Okay, so, so can you imagine the weight when you go, we killed the prophet. We killed the son of God. We killed the Christ. We did it. What hope is there for us? And Peter is trying to get them to experience the weight of that sin, that guilt. And he wants them to see that Jesus is relevant for their need for forgiveness. That he is the only way to alleviate that need for forgiveness. Look at verse 17. Now, brothers, notice he calls them brothers. He's talking to his, his people here. Peter's a Jew. He's talking to his people. Brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. Peter actually cuts them some slack there. Do you notice that? As did also your rulers. Now, ignorance or not, they still killed him. He's not lightening the, the guilt here. 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. What's Peter saying? He's saying, you killed him, and guess what? God knew you were going to do it. In fact, it was part of his redemptive plan. Do you understand what a redemptive plan is? It means God is allowing things to happen, and he is shaping those allowances into his ultimate will. <laughs> you killed him, and God used it to save you for the sin of killing him. 
Think about that for a minute. You killed him, and then God used that egregious sin, the most egregious sin you could ever commit, putting the Son of God on the cross. He used it to forgive them, to allow them to be forgiven of that sin. That's incredible. That's what Peter's saying. And then he says this in verse 19, repent. Okay, now that word, I know that word is like, it, it's just been so misused. It means think differently. Change your mind. Turn around. Repent. Think differently. And then he says, turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That word turn back, James Boyce in his commentary, he points out that the idea of turn back um, was, was, would have connected a dot in the Jewish listener to these things called sanctuary cities, refuge cities. Um, God was really gracious in the Old Testament. He built these cities purposely on the outskirts of, of Israel. He built them as a place for people to run to. So if you got accused of a crime, let's say you were out chopping wood and axe flies off and, and decapitates your buddy or whatever, it's a terrible thought. Um, you know, you run, I think that's the thought that they, they use in the Bible, actually. Um, you know, you, you, you're, you're going to get a lynch mob, so you, but you were innocent. You didn't mean to kill the guy. So you run, you turn, and you run to this sanctuary city. And the purpose of the sanctuary city is to give you sanctuary until they can give you a, a fair trial. And God was really fair when he made the law. He really was, okay? Um, and then if you're guilty, then they're going to turn you over to them and you're going to have to pay for that crime. But the idea is that you turn and go to the sanctuary. This is what Peter's saying here. He's saying, turn back and run to God. He's your sanctuary. He's where you can run to in the midst of this because you are guilty, but he can give you refuge. He says that your sins could be blotted out. That's not diluted. That's not just sort of, a, you know, um, washed over or swept under the rug, blotted out. The picture is papyrus. That's what they used to write on, papyrus. And they didn't have acidic ink like we did that would sort of stain and soak into the paper. It would sit on top so they could wipe it off. That's the idea. Wipe off, gone, clean, slate, free, done, gone. Nobody remembers it. There's not even a smudge. That's the reality of what Jesus is offering these guys. They killed the Messiah. And he says, you can, be, you can have that completely blotted out if you turn and run to the sanctuary of Jesus. Do you know what Jesus' name means? It's the Greek version of the Latin, or the Greek version of the Hebrew word, Yeshua. Yeshua means what? The Lord is salvation. Even the name Jesus is calling these guys to be saved. He is the salvation. He is the place to run to. Matthew 121, you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. And he did. God used this egregious sin to pay the ransom for these guys' freedom. Now you might think, oh, okay, well, they're guilty. Well, I didn't kill Jesus. You did. Listen to this. Listen to C.J. Mahaney quote. I always have loved this. He says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And we must answer, yes, we were there. Not as spectators only, but as participants, guilty participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, denying, and handing him over to be crucified. We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pilate, but our attempt will be futile. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us leading us to repentance, 
Only the man or the woman who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross may claim his share in its grace. Do you understand that we, just as much as them, were guilty in killing Messiah? You say, how? I wasn't there. Well, you weren't there when Adam ate the fruit either. But you know what? He represented you in what you would have done if you were in that position. You would have done the same thing. I would have done the same thing. Every time that we do not value the cross, you put him on there. Every time that you don't receive the forgiveness that he paid for, you put him on there. Every time you ignore him, don't treat him like Christ, don't treat him like God, you put him on the cross. You know why they put him on the cross? To shut him up, because they didn't want to hear him. Close his mouth. He's interfering with our lives. That's what we do every single time we don't listen. We put him on the cross. The good news is, as Mahaney clearly says, only the person willing to share in that guilt can share in its grace. So we do. We say, this is what we would have done. We are as guilty as these guys. But there is grace for us like there was grace for them. Amen? Not only are we guilty, we know we're guilty, don't we? Humans know they're guilty. Even though we, 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 can, we can talk about loving yourself and believing in yourself and, and give our kids trophies and all this, they're still going to grow up guilty. They're still going to feel guilty. doesn't matter how much I tell them. They're guilty. Uh, I remember John Stott once said, he was talking to a... Uh, uh, director of a large mental health institute, um, and he commented that this, this director of the health institute said, I could send half of my patients home tomorrow if they could only find forgiveness. Guilt drives people to insanity. It's the most controlling and compelling feeling. And some people don't even know that's what they're dealing with. Just constant guilt. Did I do enough? Should I have done more? Sins of omission, sins of commission. Did I do something? Did I not do something? Did I, the, the, the things that we've done in our past, just playing them over and over again, never finding forgiveness. This is the state that Christ finds us in, and Jesus is relevant to your present need to be forgiven. He's relevant to that because he wants to blot it out. Do you understand that no amount of diluting your sin will ever free you from guilt? No amount of, of talking yourself out of feeling bad for it will ever free you from your guilt? Only absolute forgiveness. And when I say forgiveness, I don't just mean like, oh, no, it's cool, man. Someone dings your car. It's cool. Someone still has to pay for that. The other day, man, I was pulling out of Guitar Center, and I just totally like, I'm going to scrape this guy's van just a little bit. It's just enough to leave a little mark, you know. And I'm like, oh. And he looks at me, and he goes, it's cool. It was an old van, you know, but he, he was cool about it. I just thought, thank you, Lord. And I thought, you know, that wasn't free. That wasn't free. I mean, that still lessens that guy's car value. It's the reality. Just, just saying that you're forgiven doesn't make you forgiven. But that's not what Jesus does. You know, there's a, there's a lie out there in theology saying that, that, that Jesus didn't actually pay for your sins. He just forgave them. It's not true. He had to pay for them. If he didn't pay for them, you can't really know that you're forgiven. God is just. He's righteous. He's holy. He can't just wink at sin. He can't just say, oh, it's cool, man. Make no mistake, every sin in history will be paid for either by the blood of Christ or by the, the person that committed it. It's the only way God can be fair and justice and holy. He's not holy if he just winks at sin. He doesn't forgive it because he just forgets about it. He forgives it because he paid for it. He paid for it. And you can know today that you're forgiven, not just because God just chose to forget. He doesn't forget sin. He pays for it. There's nothing left to be guilty about if you've received the blood of Christ. Every feeling of guilt that you feel is a failure to believe the gospel. Just believe. Believe it. 
Jesus is relevant to your present. He's not only relevant to your present need to be forgiven, he's also relevant to your present need for life. Okay, now there's this, this, this kind of um, anorexic view of the gospel that just tells people it's just fire insurance. So just, just don't go to hell. That's the goal of the gospel. The gospel is a lot more than that. It's not just that we are forgiven. It's that now we have this newness of life. Look at verse 15. This is interesting here. Peter says, you killed, what? The author of life. Now, if you're looking for some evidence about the way that the disciples viewed Jesus in terms of his being God, how about this one? Hey, the guy you just killed, he was the author of life. Who's the author of life? God is the author of life. This is a full-on frontal claim that Jesus was God, okay? Whom God raised from the dead, which means it affirms the fact that he was God. To this we are witnesses. In his name, by faith in his name, has made this man, the lame man, strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. The word I want you to focus on in verse 15, it says, you kill the author of life. The author of life. This is what Jesus is referred to here. The word life is worth noting because it's one of those words that comes up through, all throughout the New Testament. And, and you, you really should write it down. It's zoe. Easy to remember. Z-O-E. Zoe. Life. Jesus loved to talk about life. Here's a few uh, illustrations. When Jesus is talking to Martha, um, and, and they're, they're, she's frustrated with him because he let his, her brother die without coming and, and helping, so she thought. And she's like, don't you think that your brother's going to raise? And she's like, yeah, I know he's going to raise in the end. And Jesus goes, no, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the life. Not only did he create creation, he is the life now. He has the ability to do that now. This man who stood up and walked, it wasn't that God just sort of salvaged his body. This man's body was regenerated. It's like a starfish. If a starfish gets its, its leg or whatever they're called cut off, it has the ability to grow one back. It's regeneration. God has regenerated this man's body. It's what happens to you spiritually when you get saved. You are regenerated. You are given newness of life. The life of Christ now lives in you and is growing and coming out of you. It's what Paul was saying in Romans 5.18. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification for all men. I think that's the wrong reference. Here's another one. John 10.10. Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have what? Life. Life. And life means what? Zoe. Life. And have it abundantly. So Jesus didn't just come to pay the debt of your sins. He came to live life through you. That you could have life. That you could have abundance of life. Abundance of life. He is the author of life. The same God that that spoke the creation of the universe. Spoke life into you when you got saved. Isn't that incredible? Same power. Same God. And it was just as miraculous. In fact, if you think about it. The life that was spoken into you when you got saved. Is almost more miraculous. Because what's more impressive, building a new building from scratch or taking something that was dilapidated, broken, and dead and making that come to life? The work that God does in the believer is almost more impressive than creation because he took someone who was dead and broken and he gave us new life. And then at some point, he's going to give us a new body to match that new life. Isn't that great? Right now, you guys, if you're a believer, you don't fit in your body. (laughs) You are a regenerated soul inside of an unregenerated body. And the point of the resurrection is that you get a new body to fit your new life. I'm looking forward to that. Okay. God 
through Christ. He's living his life through you. Now, I want you to get that picture, okay? Through you. It's not that you now have some sort of ability to conjure up life. And this is where Christians get confused, right? Because they, they think, why do I not feel like I can create life? Why am I still yelling at my kids? Why am I still screaming at my spouse? Why am I still being a sinful person? It's because the regenerate believer is Christ living through you, and everything that you do is usually still fallen. <laughs> everything Jesus does is beautiful and perfect. Perfect picture of this, Jesus, I mean, he gave it, okay, vine branches. He said, I am the vine. What is the vine? The vine is the, the actual life of the plant. What are we? The sticks. We're just the branches. He says, if a, if a vine or if a branch falls on the ground, it's a stick. It's good for nothing but throwing in the fire. And you, you can walk up to a stick on the ground and say, produce fruit. Come on, do it. Produce fruit. It's the same thing you're doing when you're trying to will yourself into being a better person. Come on, be more disciplined, be more pious. You can't do it, it's just a stick. But when that stick is attached to the vine, the vine produces life through the stick. The stick isn't doing it. That's why your only job as a believer is to what? Abide in the vine. So Jesus was trying to communicate to these guys. Just hold on to him. He's the source of life. That's why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. I'm just a stick. But Christ who lives in me. In the life, Zoe, I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's Paul got that. He understood that idea. So what does that mean? I mean that means for us, it's not about trying harder. It's about being more connected to his life. Pressing in more to his life. That's the goal. This man who was lame got healed not because he somehow conjured up enough faith. In fact, he didn't even have any faith. Did you notice that? It was Peter and John's faith. I mean, he didn't do anything. He was just like, hey, can I have some money? Stand up. Oh, and he's leaping around praising God. God's power regenerated that man. God worked in that man. God saved that man. Praise the Lord, right? Christ alone can be the Zoe in your life. So he didn't just save you so that you could be free from sin. He also saved you so that you could have life coming through you, okay? And here's the third point. The third point is Jesus is not only relevant in your past, relevant in your present. Are you starting to see this? He's relevant for your future. Now, a lot of Christianity focuses so much on the, the, the past and the present. You know, you're forgiven. Yay, you're forgiven. They forget the future. They forget the fact that we have a future hope. And can I just be honest? Your future hope is way cooler than you floating around on a cloud in some kind of a spiritual form. That is heresy, dude. That is not in the Bible. I don't know, like, did Tom and Jerry invent that? I mean, I don't know where this idea of heaven came from, but it's way cooler than what you're picturing in your head. You get a resurrected body, the earth gets regenerated. It doesn't mean that God wipes it off and starts over. He renovates the earth. He makes it way cooler than it is now, which is hard to imagine because the world's actually pretty cool. Sin's terrible, but the world's pretty cool. Snowboarding, man, that's awesome. I like snowboarding. There's nothing wrong about that. Now, if I fall and break my arm, that's sin, man. That wouldn't have happened if it weren't for sin. Okay, I'm imagining there will be greater slopes for snowboarding in heaven. And I'm not just not American wishful thinking. I'm just, the, the, the creation is going to be regenerated. Where am I getting this? Look at verse 20. So then that he may, this is what Peter says, that he may, Christ, or that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive, that's the ascension, until the time of restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophet long ago. Peter says, you guys, 
Jesus, because Jesus came, now God can do this act of restoring all things, fixing the brokenness of this earth, making it like it's supposed to be. You know, people don't realize this, but, but if, if you want to know the story of creation, look at the story of Jesus' body and life. Okay, Jesus was born just like the creation was born. Jesus lived just like creation lived. And then what happened? Um, Jesus died, but then he got a new body. Okay, um, just like him, you and I, we're going to die, but we'll get a new body. And just like that, the earth is going to get a new body. Now, it's not going to be a different body in a sense, just like Jesus. He still had the holes in his hands, right? It wasn't as though Jesus all of a sudden got a new body. It was still his body, but it was glorified. It was a glorified body. So this earth will still look like this earth, but it'll be glorified, just like Jesus. Jesus was the first fruits. He was the firstborn of many. That doesn't mean he was created. It means he was the first one to enter into this new reality, this new creation that's to come. And we're going to follow. He got a new body. We're going to get a new body. And last of all, the earth's going to get a new body. And then we're going to live in it. It's going to be awesome. And heaven and earth will interface somehow. There'll be a connection there. We'll be able to see the dimensionality of the spiritual realm, which we have right now we don't even know it's there. Can't see what's going on spiritually in this room right now. We'll be able to see all that. We'll explore. We'll work. We'll learn. We'll learn about God. God's presence will be there and felt no more fear, no more anxiousness, no more sin, no more death. Isn't that going to be incredible? This is the future that Peter is calling these guys into. And it's all because of Jesus. It's all because of what he did and because of what he's going to do. That's why Jesus said that, that he is like a seed. A kernel has to fall into the ground and die so that it can bring forth life. That's what Jesus' life was. He had to go into the grave and die so that he could be resurrected and bring humanity with him. Okay, uh, Rick Boya uses this example, and it's, it makes me sound like a nerd, but it's so good. Star Trek, Star Trek Two. Anyone seen it? Wrath of Khan. Anybody? Yeah. Terry, my man. Okay, so it's the old Star Trek, man. It's the best, right? And the and the whole point of this movie is there's this this thing called the Genesis, and, and it's basically a torpedo with human with everything needed for human life to flourish in the torpedo, and 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 so they find this dead moon, and they launch the torpedo at the moon. And the torpedo lands, it just so happens that dead Spock was there, so he gets to get, come back from life, because he died in the first movie. Anyways, um, anyways, I digress. So this torpedo lands, and because the torpedo lands, all of a sudden you come back to this moon, and it's like a jungle planet. It's like life, because this one torpedo. Jesus is that torpedo, you understand? He is everything needed for the new creation. He purchased everything needed for the new creation. And because he came back, now all of creation is going to follow. That's what he was talking about when he said that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's small. It's insignificant. Isaiah 53, he'll grow up among us. No one's going to notice. Jesus, you know what he looked like? A short Jewish guy. He didn't look like anything impressive. He wasn't David. He wasn't Saul. He was just a short Jewish guy. And, and, and he got crucified, and he was, just, he was just a mustard seed. But his life... Right now through the church, but in the future through creation, is going to continue to bloom and continue to grow and, and, until, until everything has become new. That's really exciting stuff. I just don't know why Christians don't talk about that stuff. Like we're so busy just talking about floaty heaven. No wonder people don't want to get saved. Who wants to go to floaty heaven? That's terrible. Play a harp forever? Like I don't even know how to play a harp. <laughs> right? I don't know. Whatever. Moving on. Should have stopped at Star Trek. There's nothing more exciting than this, and there's nothing more exciting to live for than this. You understand me? 
I mean, think, I want you to, as John Piper does this, is a really good example. I want you to think of the most impressive thing you've ever seen in humanity in creation. Maybe it's a volcano. Maybe it was an avalanche. I mean, maybe, it was, maybe, maybe the most beautiful thing, the most sunset, you know, whatever it is. Maybe it was your, 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 your child being, you know, this human life, just there it is. Whatever, whatever the most impressive thing you can possibly think of in creation is a blurry picture of a better reality. You understand that? I mean, God is the source of glory. So he made this, and we're so stinking impressed by this that we miss him. <laughs> That's what the indictment of Romans chapter one. Paul's like, you guys worship the creation. You should be worshiping the guy that made the creation. Who do you think's better? I mean, oh, this is impressive. Okay, well, how much more impressive is the human brain? We can't even figure it out. Well, it makes more sense to worship this or the human brain. Well, neither one. But the point is we worship the thing. We should be worshiping the mind that made the thing. This is what the new heavens and the new earth is drawing us to, is this idea that God is the ultimate source of glory. The gospel, okay, remember in the beginning, my, my analogy, the, the, the gospel is that earth coming around the moon. All of us are so distracted with all these brown potholes on the moon, and we think it's so amazing, and, and all you gotta do is come around the back and see the earth, and see that Jesus is the pinnacle of human life, that he is everything that you want. Everything that you need, everything that you need in the future, in the past, in the present, he is the epicenter of human history, of human everything, of creation, of glory, all of it. Jesus is the center of that. We need to see that. And this is not my words. Do you understand that? This is Peter's sermon. This is what he wants these guys to see. Jesus is the point. He is relevant to your past, relevant to your present relevant to your future. You understand everything in this earth that has an end will be disappointing to you because you were not created to be part of something that has an end. Think about this. Everything you're looking at in the room right now has a beginning and an end. That's all you know. You don't know anything else. You've never experienced anything that doesn't have a beginning and have an end. But yet, for some reason, everything in this earth, no matter how beautiful it is, it just never quite satisfies. Why? Because it has an end. Cake's great. Cake runs out. Kids are great. They grow up and move away. Marriage is great. You know, we all die. Health is great. Wealth is great. It all runs out. It's just, there's an end, 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 end to everything except God. He's the only thing that doesn't have an end. He's the only thing that can truly satisfy you. He is the most relevant thing to your future. He is the deepest longing of your heart. The world just doesn't realize that. I mean, they're just down there, like, they're just, like, playing. I mean, forget the C.S. Lewis quote, but just, like, playing with, they're just, like, playing with sticks. And there's just, like, the most amazing thing over here, and they're missing it. Our job, what evangelism is, is just redirecting people's attention to the true source of glory. Hey, I know you think that's really great, and the reason you think it's great is because God made it. You know, I think, you know, I know you think marriage is awesome. Marriage is awesome because it's a picture of God. I know you think your kids are amazing. They are amazing. They're amazing because God made them. Don't forget that. Look higher. It's directing people's attention to the glory of God. Amen? All right, let's pray. God, I'm just so thankful this morning. I'm just encouraged, Lord, by your word. Jesus, who you are, what you did. Jesus, your plan of salvation was perfect. You did everything that was needed for us. You paid for our sin. You gave us your perfect life. You've regenerated our soul. You're gonna regenerate our bodies. You're gonna fix the earth. You're gonna answer every question in the depths of our soul and longing. 
What more could we ask for? And God, those, those moments of anxiety, they're just failing to believe this truth. The depression is just failing to believe this truth. Help us believe it every second. God, may we be a church that just unashamedly holds these realities out to people. Not, not embarrassed, but like just proclaimers of good news. This is the good news. May we go share it today, tomorrow, this week. God, I just pray you would fill this place with skeptical people. <laughs> just fill this place, Lord, with people that, that don't know what to think, but they just are looking for truth. And then may we answer those questions with the word because you do have the answers, God. Lord, please work in this place. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.